This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As we mentioned earlier, rapid testing will be deployed in some school districts. No doubt that will disappoint some parents in the areas that will not be included. But according to medical authorities, blanket rapid testing could cause more harm than good. I'd like to welcome Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the province's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Hello and welcome. Thanks. Hi. Hi. So uh, we had groups of parents uh, in an ad hoc way organize their own testing, and then the province shut them down, which really made them angry, uh, along with some doctors. And now we see a new policy, which is some will get the rapid testing and some won't. Yes, indeed. So first of all, we need to be aware of, and we have 1.1 million uh, kids aged 5 to 11 in this province, roughly 1.1 million. If we wanted to make this completely equitable, then we would need to say, okay, we offer twice a week testing to everybody in the province. And uh, this would mean we would do between uh, mid of October and uh, and uh, Christmas, when hopefully our kids start to be fully vaccinated, we would do 22 million tests. So that's already from a, from a logistical point of view quite a nightmare because you need, we need to remember that this will also really have impact on schools per se. Now, these tests are actually quite good. You know, they have a specificity of 99.6%, meaning they don't get many false positive spots. Since this is 22 million tests that we would need to do, this would mean that roughly 90,000 tests would be positive despite the fact that uh, a child wouldn't have uh, COVID-19. And that's where, you know, all these considerations now come into play that we just need to focus ideally in the situation we're in where we're really well on the way. This all works out. It works out with the vaccination, with the public health measures, that we want to focus on those places, uh, those communities and those schools that need the uh, rapid testing most to make sure that we can early identify children in schools that struggle and communities that struggle um, who are infectious for others and that we basically can take them out, isolate them, have then uh, a PCR test confirming whether the kid is positive or not. But we don't do that according to the cookie cutter principle. That's the idea here. Okay, so is, was this just a matter of, uh, you know, the grassroots getting ahead of uh, public policy and uh, it got a little out of hand? Well, I don't think so. Now, we had a discussion now for uh, for several weeks also with, uh, with Dr. Moore, with others. And, you know, what became really clear is that uh, Delta is a different animal. I sound like uh, a broken record keeps saying that. There are two aspects which are really important. One is... Delta is associated with a higher viral load in the upper respiratory tract, meaning a rapid test has an easier game to uh, to become positive if indeed there's an infection. And the other part is Delta results uh, in people getting one to two days uh, earlier uh, infectious for others, meaning you basically you get infected yourself, you know, one to two days later, you already infect others and the rapid test can with their, you know, immediate turnaround can help us to identify people who A, have a high viral load and B, um, uh, immediately within 15 minutes or so, so that you can react and actually isolate people who are potentially infecting others. That's the advantage and this has changed with Delta. Okay, I, I have a couple of quick questions about booster shots. So yes. uh, they've been deployed in long-term care. We know uh, in Israel, everyone over 60 or most people over 60 have received them. We know that their immunity starts to wane after uh, five or six months, but they're all Pfizer. Do you have any data? What about people with AstraZeneca? When does their immunity wane? And uh, what about booster shots for an older population? Yes. So first of all, it's really, really important that we uh, understand we're in a completely different boat, luckily, than Israel. Why? 
first of all, we took our time between first and second dose, which was absolutely not only the right thing to do at the time when we did it. First, we wanted to protect against the previous variant that was alpha, um, but also is now uh, with hindsight the right thing because the, the larger the interval is between the first and the second dose, the more people are protected subsequently. That's really important. Then we're having reasonable public health measures in place now that actually work really well together with uh, the vaccine rollout that we're doing without preaching our liberties. And if we keep doing that, this will help us as well. Third, right now we talk about um, uh, attaining immunity regarding infections, but we need to be aware of once more. These vaccines originally were developed to prevent hospital admissions, ICU admissions and deaths. And that's what they do, probably even if, like in Israel, you see uh, people being a bit less protected against infection. So what to do in this situation? First of all, it's absolutely the right thing to go back to the long-term care homes. Why? That's the most um, vulnerable population. They had their shots early on. They had a small interval between first and second dose of only four weeks. Their immune system, you know, is, is less um, active than, uh, you know, a 20 or 30-year-old. And they live in high-risk settings because it's a congregate setting. So it's great that these people get their shots and there will be other smaller groups too. Do we need to do that now on a larger scale? Probably not right now. We need to focus right now on the main um, um, aspect of these vaccines. That's preventing ICU admissions and deaths and hospital admissions. And this likely continues to be uh, effective. The vaccines beyond six months after the second dose, perhaps seven, eight months. We will carefully monitor that. And depending on what we see, of course, we'll adapt to decision making. And and when will we have a, a better sense of what the deal is with AstraZeneca, for instance? And now with AstraZeneca, sorry, I dodged this question because I think we forgot it. Um, we, we believe right now that this is probably quite comparable if it comes to, um, to um, serious disease. Um, like the uh, the ICU admissions and the deaths, and we are not quite sure, you know, how uh, to handle yet. Indeed, just the potential third shot with uh, with with uh, Moderna or with Pfizer. There, that's probably something which will be coming. But right now, we're not in a desperate situation because our case numbers are really low, which is excellent. Okay, we'll leave it there, and we will have to uh, revisit this issue. Thank you so much, Dr. Peter Uni. Thanks for having me again. Bye-bye. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As you heard in Jeremy's news in the first question period of the session, long-term care minister Rod Phillips reiterated the government's assertion that they will fix long-term care. So what do the people who actually run the sector think? Judging by their public statements, I'd call it cautious optimism, but Let's ask them directly. So I'd like to bring in Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario, which represents nonprofit and municipal homes, and Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. Welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for being back. Let us begin with Lisa. So your take on the throne speech, they spent a lot of time talking about long-term care, um, much of it was uh, stuff that was being reannounced. But what's your take? Well, usually in a throne speech, they don't necessarily come up with new initiatives. I think it was very positive in that long-term care was so front and center, Libby, in the throne speech. And they talked about the worker from uh, one of our member homes, Rakai, that had the very first vaccination. They talked about prioritizing long-term care, neglecting it no more, introducing legislation. So I think that this is something that is almost unheard of to have long-term care so front and center in a throne speech. So I'm very optimistic uh, that we're going to see some movement. Donna? I have to echo Lisa's comments. Uh, it, it, I think the government has signaled that it, it is committed to action.
action, uh, that they are willing to take the steps to, to address the issues that were laid bare so tragically throughout the pandemic, you know, a commitment to uh, rebuilding beds, an acknowledgement that those old buildings contributed to the loss of life. Uh, a commitment to rebuilding our workforce with us, uh, and also a commitment to accountability, transparency, enforcement, and quality. And uh, that quality piece is, I, I think, going to be really important for us uh, in uh, supporting a, a new vision for long-term care in Ontario. Uh, backtracking a little bit, before the throne speech, uh, the minister announced uh, this is something that both of you have been advocating for is mandatory vaccination in long-term care. Um, what did you make of that, Lisa? Well, we were really, really happy. I was so relieved to see that. Uh, mandatory vaccination is so critical for the whole healthcare sector, and it's a good first step that it uh, be in long-term care. And in particular, for our members that are not-for-profit, uh, it has been a lot harder for them to be able to institute mandatory vaccinations. We formed a coalition, actually, of a bunch of our members who took a public stand on this. And we were very happy to see that the government has uh, gone through to do it. But we do need to go to the next step and have all congregate care settings for seniors, like retirement homes and assisted living, and the entire rest of the healthcare sector have mandatory vaccination. Uh, sorry, Lisa, why would it be harder for not-for-profit homes? I'm happy you asked, Libby. Uh, the reason it's harder is because most of our member homes are standalone and they um, don't have the same kind of financial resiliency uh, or legal expertise to withstand potential lawsuits that may come from uh, from those who do not want to be vaccinated. Okay. I mean, the, the Ontario Human Rights Commission uh, has said that it's, it's not going to uh, give uh, certain kinds of exemptions over that. But okay, I, I get that. Donna, what's your, you were also pushing for this mandatory vaccination. So what's your reaction? And is it happening soon enough? Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, clearly, Libby, both Lisa and I and, and our members would have liked this to have come sooner, and we would have liked it to be for the, the entire health system and, and more broadly for, for seniors' care. Um, but uh, this this is a good thing. Uh, we really do support it. Uh, a large number of our members actually came out in August with their own mandatory vaccine policies and um, so have, have made enormous progress. And certainly for our larger members, uh, their policy comes to in, in effect uh, October 8th. October 12th, actually, so uh, next week. And and I would say, too, for our, our nonprofits, I would say the partnerships and the mentorships uh, that our larger operators have been able to, to lead in supporting our nonprofit homes uh, in onboarding and, and implementing, lending them their legal advice, and their legal support. We've seen the whole sector really come together around this, and I think that's a really important signal. Okay. Um, now, uh, one thing that uh, David Kravitz, who is uh, CARP's chief membership officer, so his reading of the throne speech was a definite commitment to hire 16,200 more PSWs by April. So, uh, first of all, Lisa, did, do you, did you read it that way? And is that doable? Well, the government has put in place a series of programs and funding to uh, educate PSWs and, and train them. And so uh, we're, we're hoping that that indeed uh, will happen. It is very difficult uh, to do practicums in homes uh, because they're short-staffed, but it's sort of like a catch-22. If you can't do it, then you can't get more people. And if you can't get more people, the people that are there get burnt out. So I, I think that we need to do a number of things in the sector, including uh, raising, raising the wages uh you know, in long-term care uh, to make it um, more in line with the rest of the healthcare sector. Uh, so there's a number of things that need to be done, but I think that we, we sure hope that we get those 16,000 and the government has definitely uh, moved forward with uh, education, free education uh, for PSW students. So uh, that's uh, you seem to be hedging your bets. Is that something that they're going to be able to deliver on or... Well, it's just it's hard to know what what's going on with the placements in the homes, which is so important. I know a number of our homes uh, have had to turn away students recently because they just don't have the capacity. And uh, homes that had lower vaccination rates are now losing staff because of the vaccine, uh, staff who don't want to be vaccinated. So I think we're definitely going to get more PSWs. How, how many exactly we get is hard to know. 
Donna, what's your view of that? Do you think, uh, is that a, a doable deliverable? It, it's certainly aspirational, and it's, it's what we need. Our, our, our biggest challenge is, uh, to Lisa's point, uh, losing staff to, to vaccine hesitancy or vaccine refusal. Um, there's a lot of stigma around long-term care right now after what we've been through. So tone and approach and how we do a reset to restore confidence in long-term care and know um, how we work with, with students and learners and others to uh, help them realize that long-term care is a great destination for employment, uh, for caring people who really want to support our aging popula- population. We, we, we need to make it attractive and uh, you know, really change uh, uh, what we're talking about here and, and reimagine long-term care and make it more, um, more valid, valued, uh, and making sure that, uh, we're talking about the opportunity to pe- to be part of something that is about changing the future about how we provide seniors living in care in Ontario. Uh, Donna, what about the money? Um, Already in a lot of not-for-profit homes, uh, the wages are higher. What is the appetite on your members to to increase salaries, which, uh, you know, a lot of people say is, is the only way to keep and retain staff? And also, I mean, even a lot of them are putting together part-time work. I'd give them full-time work. That's expensive, too. Yeah, and, and I would say, Libby, it's not just about the money. I think there's a recognition that, uh, the way we're funded and how we how we uh, how we support our employees has to change. I, I think you've got we've got consensus on that, but the current uh, funding models and collective agreements uh, aren't aren't working anymore. And you know we we we've lost a lot of our registered practical nurses over the last year because. The government has supported, and, and, and our homes have also implemented, independent of the government work, um, uh, in wage enhancements for for PSWs. But that then creates wage compression for the for nurses who have been, especially on nonprofits, haven't been able to get pay increases uh, over one percent. So we've we've created a, a house of cards here that that we need to fix. And uh, but but money is only one part. I I do believe that the language we use to talk about long term care, we've got to change the tone and approach. We've got to change the culture, and we have to be committed to work together to build up and restore our homes uh, and uh, reimagine seniors care. Lisa, uh, from the point of view of the nonprofit part of the sector, what about uh, the wage issue? Well, so I agree with Donna that 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 is a big part, and there are are other pieces. So nonprofit homes um, are not allowed, just like the rest of the public sector, to increase wages more than one percent. But for-profit homes and municipal homes are actually exempt from that. And that's a piece of legislation that came in a couple of years ago. So that's been a big barrier. But I also think that another part of it, as Donna was starting to say, um, was reimagining long-term care and having more uh, what's called emotional focus type of long-term care where people are at the center is so critical. And um, models like the Butterfly Home or the Eden Alternative, things like that coming into long-term care really change the way care is provided. And we need government to um, enshrine that in the new long-term care legislation that they're going to be putting forward this um, this fall. And really change change the conversation in long-term care so that the residents are at the center. If they want to wake up at 10 o'clock in the morning, they should be able to. If they want to eat dinner at 4 o'clock, they should be able to. And we really, and then once you change that, then you also, um, evidence has shown through the butterfly model, the staff are happier. And if staff are happier, they stay. Yeah, but isn't it um, more expensive and uh, you need more people and uh, more training to deliver that kind of care? It is and it isn't. If you look at the amount of money that's spent on turnover and recruitment and overtime, and you compare it to, um, you know, looking at a different model of care, it's not necessarily more expensive. What we need is some upfront funding to help homes put this new model in place, and the government has already committed to increasing the hours of care. So let's make those hours count. Let's make those hours delivered in a different way. Uh, Donna, uh, you're talking about reimagining care, uh, but, you know, with the focus on 
beds and and a certain type of unit and and um home care kind of isn't part of the model so is is it going to work when it's all being done in kind of that framework yeah you you raised an excellent point libby for for us we're talking about we've got 40,000 people on a wait list in ontario today and and what we're seeing in our homes right now that the path into long term care is either through a crisis community placement uh, for someone who, who may have end-stage Alzheimer's or advanced dementia uh, and the family can, is no longer able to, to cope and manage them uh, safely in their home, uh, care for them safely in their homes, or directly from hospital where you have really complex medical needs. So we were disappointed that home care wasn't mentioned in the throne speech. Uh, we really do need to, to think about uh, how we're going to help those individuals who, who can't uh, find a way through the door into our, our long-term care homes. And, and we need to think about campuses of care that have uh, frailty clinics, that have intergenerational programming, day programming, uh, living, independent living, assisted living. And Lisa talks a lot about that and, and retirement as well as long-term care. And uh, and we, we need to build it around what people want. Our, our baby boomers, our Zoomers, Libby, um, have choice in their lives. Uh, they they you can you can get your coffee about 172 different ways. Uh, and to Lisa's point, if you want to have a coffee at 6:30 in the morning, then you should be able to. So I I think that um, your listeners are are really going to, I think, hold our hold our uh, public uh, figures accountable for ensuring that we're building out change in a way that that's going to meet their needs, but also their wishes. Uh, Lisa, we're starting to wrap things up. So how are you going to be holding this government to account? Well, we, um, we put out a number of position papers and we are meeting regularly with officials in the government. Uh, our members are mobilizing as well um, and sending letters to their MPPs. And I'd say that it's it's all of our responsibility to hold government to account. They're elected by the people. And I think that everyone should talk to their politicians, uh, provincial politicians, and say, what are you doing to improve long-term care in this province? What are you doing to improve seniors' care in this province? As Donna was saying, it's more than long-term care. We need to look at the full continuum of care and make sure that people can age in place in the most appropriate environment. Okay, I'm going to take a call uh, from Barry in North York, and I guess it comes to this, uh, Barry. You know, are you looking towards what they're doing going forward, or is it a matter like, are they forgiven for what took place before? Well, for me, actually, no. I think that, first of all, the people that have violated terribly um, the uh, rules and uh, and put the long-term residents in terrible danger and at times of death should be punished, especially one in Scarborough, because then that that sets a precedent and it shows people you can't do this, big business, you cannot do this and get away with it. Um, and then, of course, do what your guests are are are, um, are suggesting. I'm wondering what the guests. Okay, thanks, Barry. Uh... Just, uh, Donna, what are you going to do? 20 seconds to hold them to account. Yeah, so we're going to problem solve, and that includes, to Barry's point, making sure that if, if the government has problems with homes who aren't reporting or aren't doing things, they should use the tools that they have. So accountability is going to be really important, both on our homes, but also on government. So we are working with our partners, building out a plan, and we're going to bring solutions to government to say, this is what you need to do. And this we're not going to wait for the government to tell us uh, how they're going to do it. We're going to give them the solution that has consensus, and there's remarkable alignment across the health system uh, and, and with our seniors advocates and say, this is what it needs to look like, and then how, how do you meet that test? Okay, thank you so much, Lisa Levin and Donna Duncan. You're welcome. Thanks, Libby. Take care. You too. We are going to take another break, and when we come back, Dr. Peter Uni. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. 
Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And as always, there's a lot to talk about. We have the throne speech here in Ontario. It was pretty short on specifics, as they all are, though CARP was hopeful uh, about the long-term care file because of some specific deliverables on the hiring of staff. Also, I'm curious about the way the whole rapid testing for schools has unfolded. When it came to light that parents were organizing it on their own, the Ford government stepped in to stop it, which enraged some parents and some doctors. And this morning, the chief medical officer of health announced that, well, yeah, some testing for schools will be happening. Now, it just seems to me that everything seems to unfold that way. Uh, And um, it has me scratching my head sometimes. And this, of course, is the lead up to the provincial election at the beginning of June. And of course, we have to talk about Tofino Trudeau. So let me give the numbers out. 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And let's go to Karen Stintz, the CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Bob Richardson, Liberal Strategist and Senior Counsel to National Public Relations. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hello, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hi, everyone. Well, okay. So, uh, the Tofino Trudeau to start. He finally <laughs> apologized, but, uh, boy, uh, the, the amount of ink that sparked and commentary, um, among other things saying, this is a sign that maybe he's on the verge of resigning. Um, let's start with Karen. What do you think? Well, I, I don't think he's on the verge of resigning, but I, I do think, um, you know, I think that it's for sure there's a moment of reflection that's required here because, you know, he, instead of being humbled by the fact that he has a minority government and didn't win what he wanted out of the election, you know, he's still operating in a way that is not um, demonstrating that he's learning. And it, it, you know, for all the reasons that we know, it was a, a cause, a, a, an unbelievable error of judgment to take a holiday on the first day of reconciliation that his government pronounced it to be a national holiday or federal national holiday. I mean, there's nothing more to say about it. It was just dumb. But, you know, what it does is it sets us back because there was Mark Mark steps towards a a, a believable process for reconciliation that the country was buying into. We have an Indigenous uh, lieutenant governor now. And our governor general, rather, you know, we've got it. There's there's a recognition in us in our schools. There's a recognition in the workplace. There's land proclamations that are taking place in businesses. So, you know, we're all collectively recognizing that this is important and that we need to embrace it. And but now this but now this has happened, and it's a big step back in our progress. And it also begs now the bigger question is, okay, how do we continue moving forward? Because if the prime minister doesn't deem it to be an important enough day to take pause and reflect, but instead turns it into a personal holiday for him and his family, how is there any legitimacy in that day? And um, I don't know. The, I, John, do you think that that is uh, kind of uh, overblowing it? I mean, Trudeau, um, you know, obviously was acting like entitled or whatever it was, but that was, uh, does that cast a shadow on the whole thing? Uh, no, I don't think it's overblowing it, but there's nothing about what he did that was right or appropriate. Um, and, and I say that because, you know, I, I give him full credit for, for taking the lead and taking the charge and creating the, 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 the Remembrance Day, the, the Memorial Day, the Day of Thinking, the, you know, and calling it an Indigenous Day, and really getting all the provinces to, to line up as well. So I give him full credit for that. But, but you would think that if somebody who led the charge that he would be, you know, the one person who would spend the full day uh, attending events and, and doing, you know, the things that a prime minister ought to be doing uh, at a time when, when truth and reconciliation was needed, uh, and it was the first of, of the holidays or the first of the, of the days, I didn't call, I don't like calling it a holiday, but a first of a memorial day to, to really, you know, to really uh, to take stock and, and, and understand what, what, what's been happening with, with the Indigenous community. And for him to be able to go to one day, so one event in the morning and then the fly off at the Fino, I think flies in the face of, of you know, 
why, what, what was he thinking? And if it wasn't him thinking, what was the staff thinking? Like, why, somebody should have said, raised their hand and said, wait a second, you know, maybe we should hold off and leave at 10 o'clock tonight or tomorrow uh, and go, or if we're going to fly there, maybe we should stop in Kamloops and then go to the field. There's so many things that he could have done. So what I worry about, Libby, and, and to your question about overblowing it, you know, it, it, the, the, the unfortunate thing is, is that it took all the press, it took all the attention away from what it should have been. Uh, and then, you know, there was always, there's these indigenous leaders who were, who were condemning what he did, instead of being able to say, you know, here's what we were supposed to do and, and think about and, and really give, give some thought to. So I think it took away from that. Will it be something down the road or a future in indigenous days where I think there'll be some panel or some reporter that'll say, do you remember the, the inaugural holiday uh, or the uh, inaugural indigenous day that was set when the prime minister went to Tofino? So there will always be some mention of it. But I just hope that, you know, he's apologized. Let's move on. But it was a huge bad mark for him and, and bad judgment that I think will cost him some uh, some some support for sure over the course of the next little bit. Bob, is, uh, is anybody going to remember in uh, two weeks or a month? Well, look, I don't think it was. Uh, it, this is not the high mark, water mark for, for this prime minister. I think it was an error. Uh, I'm glad that he's spoken to some uh, Indigenous leaders and uh and apologize, and I think it was probably uh, appropriate to do so. I think um, he thought by doing an event the night before, it was going to be fine, and so on and so forth, and and that was clearly an error. So, you know, I think that's that. I will say uh, elements of the Canadian media have way, way, way overblown this, which is actually creating some sympathy for the guy. Uh, on People like the National Post and the Toronto Sun cannot help themselves because he has beaten them in 2015, 2019, and 2021 when they've thrown everything at him but the uh, kitchen sink. Uh, commentators like John Ibbinson, who got it completely wrong when he wrote a book saying that Stephen Harper was going to be in every time and is now saying that Trudeau has to retire over this. It's another example of him getting completely wrong. So these guys are losing their minds because they have Trudeau derangement syndrome. Uh, they don't really care about uh, truth and reconciliation. They've never demonstrated a strong interest in Indigenous issues, but because Trudeau made a mistake in this area, all of a sudden now they're experts on the topic. It's a little tough to take, uh, and it's a little uh, amusing. Uh, I think they've over their, overplayed their hand, as they always do. Well, yeah, but Bob, them once Bob, again. To, to be fair, it was uh, Aboriginal leaders who, uh, Indigenous 100%. leaders, I, I, who were and first I, and upset. I acknowledge that, uh, and I acknowledge that, Libby, and I acknowledge that the guy made a mistake. But these guys are out of control. They can't stand the guy. They don't care what the issue is. Whatever happens, they exaggerate things to a point where they actually create a backlash of people going, hang on a minute, let's, you know, uh, are we going to set up the Nuremberg trial here? Oh, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. It's okay, uh, Bob. Bob, you can you can cancel your subscription. <laughs> but I, actually, I blocked most of these people, and I got to tell you, my Twitter feed now is dogs, cats, travel, various things like that, and I've noticed my tension level is way down. Bob, <laughs> you look younger as a result. <laughs> hey, I, I was just looking at a picture of an adorable tiny little baby cuddling a cat. <laughs> you can be stressed with that. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, let's move along to the province. Uh, Karen, uh, what did you make of the throne speech? Good, bad, indifferent? Well, you know, it's it's really, yeah, more the same. And uh, it, it, it's a little bit interesting that it, if it was supposed to be an election prelude, uh, it, it's still not clear you know, how that election is going to unfold. But, you know, given where we are and given that there's still some challenges around COVID and recovery and there's so many unknowns, um, probably it's a safe speech because it's not going to create any ripples in the water. And, uh, you know, he tends to, you know, when he makes a promise, as you pointed out, and sets a direction and then reverses it, it's troublesome for the government. So this speech is a very safe speech and nothing that's going to cause him any heartache down the way. John, I, I, I want to get to that because it's, you know, on the one hand, you know, we always say we want to give credit to a government that realizes that they've been wrong and they change course. But 
it, it seems to happen with kind of head-turning speed for this government. And there always seems to be damage in its wake, either damage to the government or, uh, you know, I say in the case of long-term care, you know, people died because it took so long to pivot. But, you know, what is that, that they never seem to get things right the first time? Well, look, I, I think, first off, with respect to the throne speech, and, 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 you know, we all know that throne speeches are usually for, for you know, the media and pundits, and, and rarely do, do, do Canadians or Ontarians out there recite what, what a leader said in a throne speech, be it the federal throne speech or the, or the provincial throne speech, but it does give some direction. It does allow for some folks to be able to look at that and say, okay, what direction is? I remember, you know, when, when the prime minister did his throne speech after he had prorogued Parliament and was, you know, was building up to this whole new, you know, direction. And, it, and it, it was basically just a reiteration of some of the stuff he did in the past. And there was some criticism of that. But I think this, this throne speech, too, and nobody, nobody expected or wanted a, an hour and a half uh, throne speech. But I think it does focus on a couple of key things, which maybe are important because it does give direction to what they want to do between now and election in June 2022, which is, of course, health care. And I think him talking about some of the things that he did with health care during the pandemic was important, but also focus as you said early on about uh, on the long-term care uh, and and earmarking the 30,000 new long-term beds and, and the five million to hire more more staff over the course of the next number of years those are instrumental policy decisions that they've made that they're going to continue to make uh, and that the minister of long-term care Rod Phillips continues to to push on including you know today in, in the legislature so those are that's directional that's important because that's going to be something that the government needs to have fixed uh, or at least dealt with before the next election happens to, yeah, to, but, get, to gain but, some confidence back. But John, the 30,000 beds were an election province, uh, promise before uh, 2018. The extra hours, you know, likewise, that that's a, an old promise. Now, CARP did see, uh, a, you know, a deadline of April for, uh, I think, 16,000 personal support workers, which I don't know how that's going to happen. But. Yeah. But all of those other things are previous commitments. Well, but it speaks to what, what they're going to do. And I think one of the priorities is going to be, and you're going to hear that a lot of this, is promises made, promises kept, narrative. And I think that's going to be one of those where, yep, promises made, promises kept. And I think that's going to be one where he's going to have to keep the promise for sure. And then the other thing that, the, the, that you know, they talked about was a 10, $10 daycare that they're going to work with the feds and obviously come up with a deal on that, which I think is going to be important. And then, of course, economic recovery. And it's going to be the economic recovery, Libby. I think that's going to be the biggest piece of this going into the election. And I think something that is going to be driving this government, uh, you know, including making sure that we still have the numbers that are below the 500, 600 threshold, and, which is positive. And again, and all those numbers, uh, the vast majority of them are those people that are unvaccinated, which is something that the province has been dealing with. So I think people are going to judge him based on that. And whether or not he goes back on certain things or changes his mind, as long as he changes his mind to the better, people will always respect politicians who acknowledge that they made a mistake, they acknowledge that they might have gotten something wrong, but they've changed it. And changing it to the better, not to the worse, I think will make people remember him in a very positive light going into the election next year. Bob, uh, the liberal leader was uh, on with me yesterday, Stephen Del Duca, and he says he thinks that the campaign strategy is to keep Doug Ford in hiding. Do you agree with that? Well, I do agree with that. And and I will say, uh, look, um, throne speeches are not the biggest thing on the planet. And two, do I expect this government to be reelected? History tells me it probably will be. Most Ontario governments get a second term. Uh, Ontarians like the idea of federal liberals uh, there. If that's the case, then to have provincial Tories. Uh, they have more money. They have more incumbents, and the opposition is weak. The NDP have been uninspired, and the liberals, in fairness, even Del Duca's worked hard, but it's probably it will take two rounds for them to be really you know, back in the ring 100%. So do I expect these guys to be back? I suspect that's probably the case. That being said, this is one of the worst throne speeches in 40 years. There are no ideas. There are no plans. There is no energy. There's no enthusiasm. It was a big nothing burger. And, you know, say what you want about Mike Harris. And I ran uh, elections against him. I have the track marks on my back to prove it. Um, At least he had ideas and he had a plan. These guys seem to have all the vision of an Aurelia city councillor. Like they just... They, they just seem to have no vision at all, no idea what they want to do. 
They want to be in office, but they don't want to know what they want to do once they are in office. Ontario could have a lost decade while, while this dithering goes on. I just hope they get their act together and come up with a clear plan and idea. The one area where I would say I would give them uh, a pass on has been on long-term care. I think Rod Phillips is doing a good job, and I think he's bringing some focus and energy to that file. But And I would give Mon- Monty McNaughton credit, too, as well, on the, on the skills trade and, and training file. The rest, it is one big nothing burger, and these guys need to get their act together. Uh, Karen, um, one of the things uh, that Stephen Del Duca said is that he thinks before the election they will put in some kind of tax relief. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know that there'll be a tax relief necessarily, but I think people are worried about an increase in taxes, particularly at a time when inflation is is threatening to go on the rise. So, and you know, how, how businesses are going to cope with a labor shortage without offering more money. So, you know, I, I think that just for the government to say there's not going to be a big tax increase is sufficient. I'm not sure that anybody expects a decrease. So I, I find that position a little surprising. Um, but I, I would echo um, some of what Bob was saying in that, you know, I, and and even to, to suggest that that's why the pivoting keeps happening is because there isn't really a strong framework for decision-making within the government right now. And so when they come out with decisions, they're hard to explain. And then they're easy to reverse because it wasn't clear how they were made in the first place. But, you know, I would say that for the school testing in the schools, it was recently reversed. You know, I think there is a good reason that you would maybe not want to implement that and that, all that infrastructure because ultimately you want to get those kids vaccinated. And if you have parents vested in a whole infrastructure of rapid testing, then it diminishes the urgency with which you'd have those kids get vaccinated. And, you know, the scientific table, I thought, gave a reasonable explanation and that, you know what, our cases are really low. Um, antigen testing has a purpose, um, broadly speaking, when community transmission is low. It's not a good resource to deploy in the schools. Well, and- you... You, you know what? And we are going to have Peter Uni on uh, towards the end of the show. No, they had a good explanation, but it's just I'm I'm sort of thinking of the way it unfolded. One hundred percent. They they came so out and it, it's they they were like beating parents who were trying their best to do the best for their communities. Right. I, it just wasn't a good look. But if but, they had but, said, you know what, parents, we're on your side, and when transmission reaches the point where we need to deploy these, we will be there to support you. Thank you for your work. Yeah. But to, just, but, to order the agencies to stop sending the kids? <laughs> yeah, I mean... Why it, they would do that? But these guys have been consistently behind throughout the entire pandemic. They were about two months behind on t- testing, behind on tracing. We won't, we won't get too heavily into the website. Chitty, chitty, bang, bang. We saw that one. Um, you know... Uh, they were behind on coming out of lockdowns in, in, in certain areas that didn't make sense. Rapid testing behind. Like, we're constantly seem to be behind other jurisdictions, and there seems to be kind of almost a lack of leadership. I, I think the Minister of Health is doing the best that she can, but there seems to be a lack of political leadership at the top to kind of drive things on this issue. And they're always sort of like putting their finger up in the wind to see where things are going, as opposed to saying, we got to get moving on these things. I think that's been a big problem throughout this pandemic. Well, at least we're not behind Alberta and Saskatchewan. Um, Absolutely. Well, uh, John, um, Jason Kenny, is, is he done? And is that having an impact on, on conservative, other conservative governments? Let me just add in here how nonsense this is as far as, you know, how much, how much behind we are and when, what we're doing. I think, I think being able to judge a leader based on a pandemic that is a global pandemic that no one had a clue what was happening at the very beginning and that people were making decisions, leaders and health officials were making decisions on the fly at some point over the course of the last little while that were conflicting. I think the Premier of Ontario has done a phenomenal job based on some of the issues that he's been doing. Has he, has he backtracked on some stuff? Has he changed some stuff? Has he apologized? Yes, he has. And leaders always do that. I wish the Prime Minister would when he delayed you know, us getting the vaccines back in 2020 uh, to a point where we were behind the eight ball as a country. But nonetheless, the premier has done as much as he could 
with what he's had and the information he's faced. And as he made some decisions that were wrong, yes, it is admitted to it. But we are now at one of the leading provinces, not only with people that are vaccinated, both first and second vaxes, we're now getting we're now getting long term care uh, workers and, and, and folks getting booster shots. We're now also leading the, the country when it comes to to uh, you know cases that are that are lower than than any other jurisdiction, and we're also offering help and assistance to other provinces. So yes, you know what that I think is what's going to matter. I think that's what at the end of the day why our province and why the premier is getting some support now where he didn't before because he's making those decisions. He's made those decisions that are putting us in a better position vis a vis other province provincial jurisdictions, which unfortunately are not because of the decisions they made some time ago that we didn't. Sorry, I had to sneeze. Uh, um, Aaron O'Toole, he meets his caucus for the first time. Uh, to me, it looks like uh, he, he will survive this round, even though uh, since the original counting, they seem to have dropped two seats. Is that what you think, Bob? Uh, yeah, look, I think this is a bit of much ado about nothing. I understand why it is a story. But, you know, as I think I said previously, uh, uh, Libby, it's not uncommon for 20 to 25 percent of your party to vote against you after an election, particularly when you lost. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when David Peterson got his massive majority. Um, there was a party convention about two months afterwards. 18 percent of the party voted against him. And it was the biggest win the Liberal Party had had in 70 years. So, you know, these things do kind of happen. Um, I think their debate is they're having this debate. Oh, oh, we didn't go right wing enough. I, I, I don't think that's their problem. They weren't modern enough. They weren't urban enough. And they weren't in touch with uh, some of the issues that matter to Canadians, um, particularly in urban areas. Uh, I think they made mistakes on vaccines. Uh, they handed us a huge club on assault rifles. Um, their lack of policy, unlike the British Conservative Party and others on climate change, as an example. So they have lots of room to fix their problems. Uh, but uh, but do I think changing leader is, is one of the biggest things that they need to do? I don't. I think that would be an error for them to do that. Hmm. Um, here uh, in Toronto, uh, we keep having these big vaccine clinics and I think it's kind of a state of diminishing returns. I just learned that the Vax 25 initiative on the weekend, a thousand people got a shot. Karen, uh, does it sound like uh, it's still worth doing that? I mean, my, my thought is that whoever wants a vaccine has had one. Yeah. You know, I think that they, uh, to your point, Libby, like the, the mass clinics probably have outlived their usefulness. And there now needs to be a shifting towards making it available in the into the pharmacies um, and the shoppers' drug mart, so that if someone, you know, for kids that are turning twelve that are now eligible, there's an easy and convenient way for parents to get their kids vaccinated, as an example. And so um, that infrastructure should start to be considered, as well as if there is going to be a push to vaccinate kids in schools, those resources need to be shifted towards that goal. Um, because that is no small feat to undertake. And I don't think a mass vaccination clinic is the best way to get these kids vaccinated if that's the choice the government's making. That really, that, that needs to happen in the schools. And that's, that's a whole separate level of uh, logistical deployment that the government has to start thinking through pretty soon. Well, they they say they are. We'll see how that rolls out. Uh, and speaking of vaccination, um, what about the fallout from uh, MPP Park, who misrepresented her vaccine status, and she got turfed from her uh, from her parliamentary secretary job? Uh, that's an extra sixteen k a year. It, is that enough? I mean, people are screaming that there's a double standard. Uh, John, what do you think? Yeah, no, and I let me just also address. Just I would take a slightly t- take different take on the on the vaccine vaccine and vaccination centers. I do think Libby that there's still some people that that are, are willing and, and need to get pushed to get vaccines, and we saw that little uptake after the the, the, the 
the premier decided that he was going to do a vaccine certification, we had a huge uptake. So I think there's still room for people to get vaccinated. So the more opportunities and the more accessibility, the better. Um, with respect to uh, Lindsay Park, I think it was foolish for her to uh, to lie. I think that it ought to have cost her the uh, the, the role as, as it did. Um, she was able to get a, a medical uh, certificate that that gave her some exemption, and the premier was pretty consistent about that. And it was it was the same with another MPP that was uh, that was pregnant that had got a, a medical certificate. Rick Nichols, uh, who was the one who got kicked out of caucus. Uh, you know, decided not to uh, uh, get a vaccine, decided he couldn't get a, ma- a medical device or a medical uh, certificate or, or an exemption, and as a result was kicked out of caucus. So I think he's being consistent. I think Lindsay Park lying was not a good thing and obviously uh, is paying the price for it. Um, Bob, is that enough? She's yeah, paid? I think so. I, I mean, she struck me as one of a sort of a bright new uh, member of the legislature. Unfortunately, made a mistake here. I think probably deserves to go into the penalty box for a bit. I wouldn't overblow it more than that. Um, people do make uh, errors in their lives. And I think uh, we're getting carried away in politics where when people make a mistake and, and, and people do that somehow or other, you know, um, uh, we need to relive the crucible from uh, several hundred years ago. I think we need to cool it. I think when people make mistakes, there's appropriate uh, punishments for that. We let that live itself out and let's move on. Uh, Karen, um, we're uh, about to wrap things up. We're heading into Thanksgiving. So just a general thought on that. Are you going to be able to spend it with your dad? Yes, I am. And his favorite thing is pumpkin pie. So I'm going to be able to visit him and bring him his, uh, his favorite, <laughs> his favorite pie. <laughs> and, uh, he's been doing really great. And I want to just, uh, you know, I don't want to take time. I don't have, but a huge shout, shout out for the staff in his facility. They are remarkable and, uh, he's doing incredible. So I'm very, I'm very thankful. Uh, you know, we're, I think that a lot of people are going to be getting together with uh, perhaps slightly bigger groups than they're used to. So I guess we'll have to see what happens. But, uh, you know, just a general thought, Bob, to wrap up, uh, where do we sit as we head into Thanksgiving 2021? Well, Karen, if there's any leftovers, pumpkin pie is my favorite, too, as well. So, uh, All right, put, I know where to send it. <laughs> put me on the list. Uh, look, I think this is a much better Thanksgiving than last Thanksgiving, if I recall. Uh, I think there will be bigger groups. But, again, that's a good thing uh, because we've gone out and 82% of us are double vaccinated. I think people are still wearing masks out there. I think people are, most people are doing the right things. I think we got to celebrate some of the success that we've done. Uh, John was highlighting some of that earlier in the call. Uh, and, uh, and, and not just focus on the negative side. So I hope people have a terrific uh, Thanksgiving. And I hope people have an opportunity to get together with their extended family. Okay, that's a good note to wrap things up on. And, uh, of course, we'll be talking the day after Thanksgiving next week. Thank you so much. And happy Thanksgiving, John Capobianco, Karen Stintz, and Bob Richardson. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Libby. Thank you. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, um, well, uh, the long-term care bit in the throne speech is getting some good marks. So uh, we'll talk to some of the people who are actually in that sector and see what they think when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.